growing up, you know, I had a, a great childhood, I thought, I uh, think so. Uh, growing up, I had three younger brothers, older sister. Uh, I have a very special, unique relationship with each of those uh, uh, folk. We, we've had uh, great memories and special jokes with, with each of them that are kind of just unique to us. The brother right underneath me, though, was the oldest boy. Then there came Matt. We're three years apart. Matt and I were no doubt the closest, though, of all my siblings. Because we were so close in age, we grew up playing together. We, we just spent all kinds of time playing tank, Tonka trucks and collecting G.I. Joes and uh, riding bikes and jumping ramps. We collected wacky packages and Major Matt Mason stuff. And, and at Christmas time, I remember we would always climb into each other's bed and dream, you know, as we got closer to the, the, the big night, dream of all the things that would be coming and talk about how we would finagle and get down the hall and find the, all the presents. Um, as we got older, we worked on our cars together. Um, we would talk about girls together. We would talk about our, our, our faith and both very involved in, in youth groups. And, and what God was doing and sharing our faith. And we double dated. And, and no, I mean, no questions about it. Uh, Matt and I were the closest. He knew me, and I knew him probably better than anybody else in the family. When you think about Jesus' family, Jesus had some brothers as well. According to Matthew 125, after Jesus was born, of course, he was the firstborn, right? But after he was born, Mary and Joseph uh, began normal sexual relations between the two. Um, there were at least four brothers that followed up. Matthew 13, Mark 6 names them. There are some sisters, too. We don't know how many, but at least four brothers. We don't know how long the gap was between Jesus and the next brother, but uh, probably, I mean, culture, it would, you know, a year, 18 months. And according to uh, Mark 6, Matthew 13, the brother that would have been the very next one, most probably, was James. James is listed in both of those lists, the very one right behind Jesus. So difference between James and Jesus, 12, 18 months. So I'm just using some uh, projection here, but... Uh, James and Jesus grew up together. They played together. They, they you know, wrestled together. Can you imagine wrestling with the Son of God? You don't know it is yet, but you're giving God noogies. You know, what a major thing this is. What's going on with this? Uh, calling him names and, and, and wrestling. Maybe collecting stones together. Maybe talking about stuff they were learning in synagogue together. Mary and Joseph discipled both of their boys. I don't know if they... Uh, uh, talked about girls. I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. But no doubt, James and Jesus, very tight relationship. Uh, now, James is Jesus went off and you know they grew up and he went and started his ministry. That was not a strange thing. That would have been a, a, a normal thing. Uh, but when Jesus started claiming deity. I mean, James, no, you realize you, you can't do that. That's blasphemy. Jesus, what are you doing? They kill people for that kind of thing. What are you saying? And then when Jesus began to work miracles, what's James thinking? I don't have a clue how he pulled that off, but what, what is going on? I don't know. And so scripture tells us that James was not 
one of Jesus' followers while Jesus was in his three years of public ministry. But after Jesus rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15 lets us know that Jesus makes a beeline to James. And James' life is altered. It's changed, radically changed. James becomes the very first pastor of the very first Christian church in the world. I mean, it's, you know, first church of Jerusalem. I mean, it's like first church of the world. Uh, James is, is the guy. He's the best one, right? He grew up with, with Jesus. He was discipled by the same ones who discipled Jesus. He, he knows firsthand. And so James uh, writes this book in our New Testament to his church, uh, mostly Jewish believers. But James is a pretty serious guy. He doesn't have a whole lot of room for games. He doesn't have a whole lot of room for excuses and hypocrisy. He's just not going there. And so this book that he writes is to his people, showing them, telling them what spiritual maturity looks like and how you can attain to it. And so that's the book that we're going through in our summer study, uh, the book of James, Faith Works, because James is concerned about a faith that works, not one that, that doesn't. One of the things I want to, I mean, if you haven't gotten, if you haven't, if you've missed some of the messages, let me just encourage you, you can pick up a CD or go check it out on, online, uh, YouTube if you want to see it, but it just uh, gives you some uh, background for where we're, we're going to even be today. Let me encourage you as well. One of the things that we have going on this summer as we go through our study is our Faith Works blog. Um, our faith with Sandy Maley kind of is leading this thing, and a lot of y'all even have have uh, participated. We load a new blog on a daily, and so if you go to our webpage and you just kind of stare at it for a minute, suddenly come across FaithWorks blog, click on it, and it will take you uh, there, and you can. Uh, get a daily reading. I mean, there's one Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then there's one for the weekend. I think I've read all of them, and I've got to tell you, I've been very, very encouraged. New insight. I've had to sit back and look at myself. Uh, let me encourage you to take advantage of this so that we stay in the book of James all summer. That's the goal. Well, the text this morning that we're going to get into, uh, very difficult, very difficult text uh, for me, very convicting. And so let me read this. And if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me uh, to James chapter 3, if, uh, if you've got your device, you can turn that on. James chapter 3, uh, you can just listen. I don't have this up on, on the screen. However... I think it would be very beneficial for you as we go through this to have your Bible or to, to be able to see it on your device. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. When I was, uh, again, some little boy stories today. When I was a little boy, I grew up in Chicago. It wasn't in the ghetto, but pretty worn neighborhood. Lots of kids. Um, one of the things we did, I don't know if we did it for entertainment or if we just uh, did f- to demonstrate the pecking order, but we would just rip on each other on a regular basis. Uh, we would tear into the other person, and the way it worked, and somebody tore into you, then you needed to bring all of your creativity and imagination and depravity together to rip back, you know, just to shred them. Just, just it was there was a pecking order, and there's almost like a hall of fame of this kind of thing, and you just had to be on top. Um, sometimes though, and then they'd come back at you and back and. On occasion, somebody would say something that was just, you know, very <laughs> clever in a depraved sort of way, very, very uh, poisonous, very toxic, and it would just put you, get you reeling, you know, you, you didn't know where to go with that. And, but you couldn't have no response, you know, oh my goodness, you couldn't have no response. So in that case, you always fell back under the typical childhood deal, sticks and stones may break my bones, right? But names will never hurt me. You say this kind of with an attitude, you know, but names will never hurt me. Yeah. Just let them know, you know, I know you tried to hurt me with that, but <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> Now we all knew this was bogus, right? We all knew that, 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 that we would, this was a terrible thing. We were just humiliated in front of all of our friends. We were just cut down to nothing. Any self-confidence we may have had was just shattered. We were embarrassed. Uh, the pain was deep. The truth be known, sticks and stones may break bones, but words can leave lasting scars on our souls. Sticks and stones can break bones, but words can uh, handicap us emotionally. Some of us, maybe even this morning, had things that said to us a long time ago. But time doesn't heal all wounds. And they still affect us, and still we still remember. It still hurts. It still has, has it's had its impact on us. Well, it's interesting when, when James gets into this here. You know, I think this is amazing that this is the, you know, like the very first church, right? This is, this is early, early church. A lot of James membership has seen Jesus physically. A good number of the members probably knew Jesus physically. These are folk who've had to run because they were being persecuted. Some of his people, even that would read this letter, would be martyred because of their faith. You would think, you know, we think these guys, these churches way back in, it's kind of like, these guys are like hyper godly or something. I mean, no one's perfect. But these folk are like, you know, the epitome of, of sanctification. And well, we could never get there. And we struggle with our tongue and all, but not these guys. And James says, ah, one of the first things he's got to address with his church going through stuff like this, having seen Jesus, 
is, is their mouth. It's amazing. Also, you need to know when we talk about the tongue. I don't know if you've ever done this. You've said something stupid, right? And you go, where did that come from? I don't know where that came from. Well, it's not me. Well, of course it's you. Who else would it be? Your, your tongue does not have a mind of its own. Your, your tongue is, is it's a basket, and it reaches down into the depths of your heart and, and spews out what it finds. That's all. Your, your tongue is a tattletale for your heart. Where did this come from? Well, this is always there. That's where it, it came from. It's just there. Uh, this is made real clear. Matthew, we find Jesus. He says, he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. People thought if they eat the wrong thing, it would make them spiritually unclean. It's not that. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Do you not see that what's, whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. I could go on and on. This is what defiles a person, the stuff that's in. That's what comes out. So, so James says, you know, I, we need to address this. I think one of the reasons why we don't even think about that, you know, yeah, be kind with speech. Got it, got it, got it. We don't think about this so much. It's because we don't understand the power. And so James digs right in. He's going to give us his preposition in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, James starts off with teachers because, I think, the, the teachers are not necessarily coming up with their, not supposed to anyway, come up with their own words, but they're supposed to be representatives of God's words. Words are powerful, James is going to tell us. It starts with God's words. Now, um, again, got to think like these guys. These guys grew up in Judaism. Jesus came, he died, and they became the church. Uh, the, the ones who accepted Jesus as the Messiah became the church. There's no rabbis, though, in the church. James was kind of acting like the Christian rabbi for the group, and then they scattered because of the persecution, and so the people are out. There's like a vacuum. Who's going to teach us the word of God? Now, many of these folk were trained in Torah, the law. They, they knew, and they accepted Jesus, and so they started saying, you know, maybe I'll be the teacher. And, and, and James just says, hang on, hang on, hang on for a second. And as you can imagine, I've seen a lot of people over the years who want to be a pastor. And that's that's a noble thing. Um, I think they don't have a clue. I think they're very naive. I think they just don't understand. And there's no way you could expect someone to understand like everyone else's position unless they're in it. But there's wrong reasons for wanting to be a teacher, right? Um, again, the rabbis were the ones that got the prestige. They were the people most respected in the environment. They were the ones that had the control. Everyone, maybe you want to be a rabbi. I've seen a lot of people want to be a pastor because it gives them control. Those, the lights are on me and people are listening to me. And it's, it's a glorious kind of thing in that, that regard. Uh, there's a, a wrong character involved in, in, in this that James is warning. Uh, for example, when I bring out God's word, my word, it's not, it's different than God's, right? 
but I can get it pretty close. Matter of fact, I can overlap it. I can say, thus saith the Lord, and then forget to tell you that actually this is my word. And so I can kind of present what I'm saying. We've all been seen anyways, if not many of us victims of abuse from teachers, uh, wrong teaching going forth, um, somebody using the teaching opportunity to manipulate, to get their own agenda through, to kind of push through their own thing, their own deal. And so James says, ah, no, no. All of us stumble in many ways. And so nobody's perfect. You, you might not be doing this consciously, but you're going to bring it to the office all, all the same. Maybe he's talking about people who aren't prepared. They're not ready to teach. They're just, they don't have the understanding they need to have. If you're a thinking person, maybe at this point you're saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. First of all, you tell us we should be teaching Sunday school and we should teach small groups and we should be teaching the youth and we should teach and teach and teach. And here James says, don't become teachers. What's the deal? Good observation. That was good. Uh, James does not diss teaching. He recognizes what the Apostle Paul recognizes. In 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul says, um, If you desire the office of an elder, you desire a noble thing. The elders were the teachers in the early church. And Paul says, if you want to do that, that's great. But then Paul gives some requirements. And one of the things Paul says is, not a new believer. You just are not, you don't understand it enough. You haven't been tested enough. Not a, not a new believer. So lots of reasons why people might seek to teach improperly with this, this whole, whole idea is what he's saying. Don't let many of you be teachers. I think there's another reason why he mentions this though. Notice what he says. That if you teach, right, we will incure the teachers, we'll incure the stricter judgment. Now, here's the deal. If I'm trying to teach the Word of God, and I'm going to get it wrong sometimes, I wish to tell you I would never get it wrong, but non-omniscient people, fallen people, will get it wrong. And James is saying, you want to teach? Just keep this in mind. You're going to get it wrong sometime. And here's the problem with that. If you get it wrong, and you say in the name of God what God has not said... The whole idea of the teaching of the word, it's, it's to help people understand who God is clearly. It's to help people understand God's will for their life. It's to help people give freedom. But if you say it wrong, then you can twist that picture of who God is and twist what Christian life and living is supposed to be. And we maybe some of us have been victims of that. And James says, if you get it wrong, and you will sooner or later, you need to know. There's going to be judgment. I mean, God doesn't take this seriously. Just don't say, well, I meant well. I was, I tried. Hey, I, I meant well. Well, I'm glad you meant well. well you, you've got a, a friend. He means well. And he, he loves you. And he's godly. And he prays. And he's done research on investments. And he says, trust me, put all your money here. Well, if it doesn't work, doesn't matter how sincere he is, that counsel can have been very, very painful. Glad you're sincere, James says it's irrelevant. When it's all said and done, truth is going to go forth or it's not. And if you're the mouthpiece on it, not. Bad deal. Bad deal. He goes on with this, this idea. And follow me. I think there's a principle he says that he's reiterating from Jesus. Jesus says, I think it's in Matthew 12, too much is given, much is required. Right? 
Well, the teachers normally would have been the most educated, the most sophisticated. They would have been the most discipled, discipled by the best people. They would have had all kinds of information and, and uh, nurture poured into them, the teachers. And James is saying, you've got that much. There's a stricter judgment. That what's well, just saying what Jesus said, that God will judge on one level, at least here, based on what he's given you. Now, how this works practically, think for this minute. You go to a Bible study, and somebody is there in the Bible study, and they just can't understand this text. And you're going, oh, for crying out loud. This is a simple text. Oh, man, I, under, I understood this when I was like three. You know, my kids understand, my cat understands it. What is this? Would you just, you know, blow the dust out, figure this out? Or you talk to somebody, and they're struggling with a simple thing in Christian living. And you're going, oh, geez, Louise. You know, this is like, this is like New Believer 101 stuff. You've been around for a while. Come on, come on, come on, just do it. Or you come to church, and someone brings their kids to church. And their kids are just a little bit wild. And you're thinking in your mind, what are you thinking? You're thinking, discipline, would you discipline? Will you learn to discipline? That is love. Love is spelled discipline. Let's do that, right? Or someone's struggling financially. And you're going, you're you're thinking, you're thinking, oh, for crying. Listen, how about this? How about you don't spend more than you make? How about that one, huh? How about you save a little bit? How about you be a good steward for crying out loud? That might fix your issue. What? 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 This principle is a really huge principle. Because what he's saying, let me ask you this and put it this way. Did you grow up in a church where they taught you God's word? A Sunday school. Maybe it was a real good Sunday school. Real good youth department. And, and where they actually shared God's word intentionally in a way that could relate to you. And you had people who would disciple you and pour into you. And it, 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 Did you grow up in a home that was... Uh, a good, solid work ethic that came through in that home. Parents who, who modeled for you what it meant to, to raise a family or to be good stewards or, or what it meant to have character. A uh, home that was maybe a godly home. Did you grow up in a godly home where they actually the parents shared with you God's word and what it meant to have time with him? Did you, were you able, do you have the opportunity to go to a good school or to go to, to college? Did you have a family that would support you to, to get there and to uh, think through and have your horizons broadened and have people from maybe campus ministries pour into you? Did you have those kind of resources? Because if you did, there's a much stricter judgment to whom much is given, much is required. And so some of these people, they might come in, they might not understand this text. Maybe they are doing better with the very little that has been dealt to them than you have been doing with the much that was dealt to you. They might, in God's eyes, be doing much better than you are. You ever think? You see the one whose kids are going, maybe with what they have been handed to them, they are doing so much better than what you're doing when you consider all that was handed to you. And so what James is saying here is there's a judge. You're not it. Don't, don't, don't be judging folk. Don't decide that you're going to be. Don't, don't, don't go down that road because you don't know. They will stand. The teachers will stand before God one day. And pay account. So James is saying, you want to, you want to teach? That's one. You just better be real careful. I'm just telling you, be real careful. If there's a calling on your life, of course you, you need to teach. Uh, it's, if, if not, you're in disobedience. It's another whole, whole issue. So you don't want to go down that road. But then, 
he goes on and he gives us some uh, um, uh, analogies. But just before that, what James does really cool here. He says that if you, um, how does he put it? He says that uh, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. That's a mature man. He's able also to bridle his whole body. James is saying, you can control this, and your whole life is put into place. You might think, oh, come on, come on. It's a little more complex than that. James, 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 are you just using just a tad bit of hyperbole here? Just control this, and my whole body gets taken care of? Really? Really? Just James comes up with some illustrations. First one he says, in verse 3, I think. Yeah, he says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So analogy these guys would have seen a gazillion times. They would have known. You get a, a riding horse, a race horse, I'm told, 1,300 pounds. You get one of those babies that pull the Budweiser wagon things. 2,000 pound horses. And you get this itty bitty girl on top of the horse. As long as the thing has got the, the bit sitting on top of its tongue, she can steer this thing, all this power, wherever she wants it to go. It's just small things can make a big, big impact. He goes on and he says, um, look at chips also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now, the ships weren't like aircraft carriers, right? But Acts tells us that Paul was in a ship that held 300 people. So these are still pretty decent-sized boats. And the strong winds that it mentions, the word strong, it's like a violent wind. It's like hurricanes. And so James, again, is going to give us a real uh, solid biblical principle here that words are powerful for the good. You've got this, the ship and the wind is seeking to, to take it out and it's going to capsize this thing and it's, it's, it's scary and it's dangerous. But the pilot, captain, with the rudder, can, the small little bitty rudder can navigate this ship through the storm into safety. Sometimes words can be used to navigate through the storm for safety. Uh, Proverbs twenty five eleven. It's a great verse. It says, "Like a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. A right word at the right time, said in the right way, is priceless. It just it's just priceless." I was getting ready to go to my first. Uh, Job. I was right out of school. My first, you know, real job is where I'm a youth pastor, and I was pretty nervous. I was pretty anxious. I'm going to fail. I just know I'm going to fail. I'm kind of an Eeyore sometimes. And my dad pulls me aside and says, "Son," uh, and I'm not going to go through all my dad's colorful language. It'll get me in trouble. But he says, "Son, um, you can do this. You went to school for this. You grew up in the church. God has called you to this. Son, just go do your best. And if you fail, you just come on back home." You know, I had never thought of that. For me, if I failed, the whole world would end. 
No, the world doesn't end. I just can come back home. This is okay. That was so life-giving to me. I'm at, my, I'm at this first church, and I'm a single youth pastor, and I'm, I'm, I'm burdened down with the fact that God has called me to be the shepherd for these students, and I'm burdened by the fact, and the parents reminded me, that they are entrusted their child to me, and we're getting ready to go on our first retreat, and the kids are coming in in the bus, and, and I'm starting to freak out a little bit. And one of my adult leaders, Donna Marie, bless Donna Marie, she was a nurse, and she was from Boston, right? So she comes up to me, I'm freaking out, and she grabs me by the shoulders and she says, Mark, Mark, is anyone bleeding here, Mark? No one's bleeding here, Mark. It's, it's okay, just do the best you can, no one's bleeding here, okay? You, you know, I can't tell you to this day how many times I start to, ah, and I hear the words of Donna Marie, Mark, is anyone bleeding here? There's no one bleeding here. There's no one bleeding here. It's all right. It's all right. Life-giving words. I'm, I'm thinking I'm on my deathbed. I've got my mentor calls me, pastor, when I was a little boy, led me to the Lord. Still my mentor today, by the way. But he calls me and he says, okay, what are you going to do if this thing turns you into vegetable, Mart? I said, well, I hadn't thought about that. He says, well, this is what you're going to do. You're going to praise and worship God with any, any consciousness you have. You're going to praise and worship God. And so as heaven looks on and hell looks on, they're going to know that there's a God and he's real. I'm thinking, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Even the worst, I can do that. Life-giving words. I had a buddy in school pull me aside to rebuke me. Changed my life uh, for the good. I, I, I had uh, some kids send me a Bible, several Bible verses, 2 Corinthians 4 and chapter 5, at a time when I needed it. Totally revolutionized. Have you ever had anybody give you an aptly word spoken? A redirect your life, maybe. You're on a course of self-destruction. And they're challenged. Kind of woke you up. Or you're on the edge. You didn't even know you were on the edge. Or maybe you did and you didn't think anyone else knew. But they shared something with you. Just kind of change you. It doesn't change your circumstance. It directs you, it redirects you, it saves your reputation or, or your, your marriage or, or word fitly spoken. That's a good thing. And, and he says here that words are so powerful. That Yeah, they're, they're powerful for the good. But it's, it's, it's not always for the good. Matter of fact, most often not. Is what James is going to bring up. He says... So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. There's a picture for you. With our, our tongues, James reminds. And by the way, you notice here that you got these things are getting larger and larger and larger. You got the horse, you got a boat, you got a forest fire. And on the other side, things are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, comparatively speaking. You've got a bit, you've got a rudder to the size of the boat, and you got a spark. And James is saying, words are powerful for the good, or they're powerful for the bad. When we say that which we ought not to say, James says we, we, we start a fire. 
I'm going to uh, gossip about just I'm just gonna, not really gossip. See, I'm just going to say this one thing about this one person. Just one. T- I'm only going to tell one person, right? I'm going to tell this one thing about this one person. Maybe it's true. Maybe, I think it probably is true. So I'm going to tell them this one thing. Maybe not, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to tell them this one thing. Well, now they are thinking negative things about this person over here. And then what if they go tell two or three people? And then they go tell two or three people. And then they go tell two or three. So lots of people are thinking negative things. And what I've just done is I have started that gossip chain going. By the way, gossip is a sin for which Jesus died. As they participate, they fall farther from Christ. They become more hardened. They, they, they uh, keep themselves from being the people God has called them to be. When I was a little kid, uh, pretty depraved uh, kid, Heard uh, some very uh, uh, wrong jokes. I wish I could tell you that I shut them down immediately. No. I remember repeating some of these jokes, really not honoring God, not uh, reflecting his view of sexuality, of, of grace, but I shared those with people. Now, the crazy thing is, that was, you know, 47 years ago. I can remember some of these jokes if I want to. Sometimes when I don't want to. But I wonder, how many people have I told that I put that into their head? And then how many people did they tell? And how many people did they tell? And how many people were affected by this stupid joke that, I, that I've told, these jokes that I've told that has ruined uh, people, perhaps, and at least impacted them in their sexuality, in their thinking of other people? Uh, we do this kind of thing all, all, all the time. We may... Tell people with our, with our words, we may encourage laziness. Oh, come on, you don't. Uh, if I was as busy as you, I couldn't have any quiet time. I understand. Don't worry about that. I, I wouldn't go and apologize. Listen, you don't need to apologize to this person. You just apologize to God, right? You're cool. Don't, don't worry about it. You know what? If I were you, I would tell him this. That's what I would tell him because she deserved this. You put her. On. We don't need to tell your parents this. Uh, I would just go, go be. We saw, and it spreads, and people do, and people respond, and people listen, and it impacts who they hang with, who impacts others. And James is saying, we start fires with this. Our words are powerful, very powerful. Now, something in, in the, um, not just our words, sometimes it can be our absence of words too, can it? You're in a situation and you know you should say something and you don't say anything. And perhaps they're looking for counsel. Perhaps they're on the edge of the cliff. Perhaps we see them going over the waterfall and they just are in some self-destructive things. But we're afraid that we say something to rock the relationship and so we just keep our mouth shut. We don't say what they need to hear. And so... They choose negatively, they go negatively based on our lack of words, maybe. In the, in the church, there's a, uh, I think there's a occupational hazard for being on staff in, in church. But let me, let me mention this. It's not an issue right now, I don't think. But um, anonymous notes. Because often what anonymous notes mean 
is we rationalize them, but, but, and again, I've, I've definitely received my share, and so I, I'm pretty much an expert on this. I think I can, I can speak with some sort of authority. 99.9% of the time, anonymous notes are bad notes. Once in a while, some, but for the most part, bad. And what I tried, if I can open the letter, and if I notice it's anonymous, it hits the shredder, never read it. I've told, if anyone, you send them into the church, I've told our people who get those initially, try not to read them, but don't pass them on, just shred them. So we're trying not to go down that road. But what people think sometimes with anonymous notes is I can unleash, man. I can say whatever I want to say. And often there's accusations and there's impugning motivation and there's judging hearts and actions and there's just all kinds of usually bad stuff, mean stuff. And I've seen so many good people in the church who are trying hard. They're doing the best they can, but there's all kinds of variables that normal people won't, wouldn't know. They're making the best call, but then these things come in. And it just takes the wind out of their sails spiritually. And they're crushed. And they go home, and they can't be the mom or dad they're supposed to be. And they try to minister, and they can't minister the, really the way they're supposed to be. It's like the edge is taken off. And, and folk think, I can do this and not be held accountable. I can beat someone up verbally and never get caught. So that, just, this is cowardly and it's despicable. It's ungodly. It's unbiblical. I believe it's demonic. I believe it's demonic. I don't believe the person may be possessed, but I believe that they've listened to Satan's words, the words of hell, to go down that road. Matthew 18 lets us know real clear biblically what you need to do. If you've got an issue, you go to the person personally. But what's worse, I think, in my mind these days about anonymous notes is what it does to the person. Because what James lets us know here is words don't just affect the person who hears, they affect the person who sends. He says, say straight up, if you can control your tongue, you control your whole body. You're a perfect man if you can. He says it straight up, doesn't he? That, that your tongue sets the course of your life on fire. What you say will destroy, it will hurt. Again, how many, I'm not looking to open up wounds, but how many things have we said? Or how many things have we heard? Now, I was going to have everybody go, stick out your tongue to your neighbor and look. Don't, don't, we don't want to do that. But it's, it's only four inches from the tip to the back of the mouth. Uh, it, it weighs less than three ounces. It's a bitty, bitty thing. But yet, ah, powerful, powerful. Again, some of us remember. Right now, stuff a long time ago said, it's crippled us. And some of us this morning, right now, what you want to hear, you want to hear the words, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? I'm sorry I stole your peace and your joy and replaced it with pain and hurt. You know, people will go sometimes, many years later, to somebody who's hurt them, to their uh, it's often a parent to sit down and kind of have a confrontation but to let them know some of the things that were said or done and on one level that's just healing in and of itself but their goal in going is to hear the ap- apology to hear the forgiveness when somebody uh, says I'm, I'm sorry and then they say this they say would you forgive me uh, you can't miss what's going on there. What they're saying, in a sense, is 
my peace, my emotional equilibrium, my, my joy is kind of broken just by hearing what I've done with you, to you. And they're kind of giving you, putting in your hands their peace. Would you forgive me? Because you can easily, no, to hurt them back. But when you're holding their peace, their soul, in a sense, and you say, I forgive you, and you give it back. Crazy thing, you give it back whole. Even though it was given to you broken. Crazy thing, inside your own soul, healing. Because words don't just, don't just reflect our maturity. They make our, our maturity. When we, sometimes, the problem is, sometimes we give words to evil things that we ought not to be giving words to. Things that have been going on inside our heart, we put in, in words. And it's, it's like this, if you, when, when God created the world, you gotta know, He thought of the world, He thought of everything before He created it, before He, but, but still, it didn't come into existence until He said, let it be. And then when He said, when He created with the word, when He said, it kinda, when we say the word, on one level, it creates a reality in our heart, in other people's minds. And so James says, it's just powerful. We just have to be careful. It's, 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 it's powerful. He says, but it's more than that. There's a problem with our words. And that's uh, this. He says, verse 7, he says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being, no human being alone is the inference there, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. There's Shamu, and there's King of the Beasts, and there's the dancing bears, and all kinds of other stuff that we come up, we can train. But James says, yeah, you can't tame the, the tongue. It's just gonna go, it's gonna go off. Uh, Paul talks about our mouths, unregenerate mouths. Romans 3, he says this. Their throat, where the they are here, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's just what our mouths are in an unregenerate state. James goes on and he says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Or, you know, tongue, tongues are really small. They're real kind of slippery, right? They, they slide over to one side of our mouth, and we sing praises to God. This is, by the way, this is why we, we should sing these praises, these words, because as we vocalize these truths of who God is and what he's about, it molds our heart. And we, we can praise. We can encourage somebody sincerely. We can pray fervently. We can, we can speak of the wonders of God. And then our tongue moves over the other side. And we can light up the store clerk who mishandles our, our transaction. And we've got some choice words for the idiot who's in front of us driving too slow, going to make us late, not let us get where we need to go. And we can enter into some biting sarcasm. We can promote self. We can kick into a, a, a tone of, of uh, belittlement with people. Easy. I mean, one side, our tongue, what we do is we, we uh, confess our sins to God. 
The other side, we confess everyone else's sins to everyone else, right? And with, with our tongue, we confess to God that we are in need of his grace and thank you for it. On the other side, we curse people because they need God's grace. On one side, we're, we're, we're proclaiming, oh God, we are committed to your truth and we adhere to your truth and we're quoting the truth. On the other side, our, our tongue slides over and we're denying the truth or we're twisting the truth or we're claiming as truth what is really an untruth. We, 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 James looks at this. And he says, enough, is there something, there's something wrong with this picture here? How can this be going on? He says, this ought not to be so. I, you got to love that. Because what that phrase infers, this ought not to be so, is you've got some, some control here. Some power. You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to get it. You can't get it on your own. But if you've got the Holy Spirit within you, you can sharpen this. Just because it's not going to ever be perfect till we get to heaven one day does not mean we don't work on it now, is what he's, what he's, what he's saying. It's, it's uh, uh, toxic. We can't. If you follow the, the next text, it's fa- fascinating. It says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In the last chapter, James said, you got this profession of faith, but your works don't match. Your works have to match your profession. This chapter, he's saying, you got this profession of faith, but your words don't match. Your words have to match your profession. Uh, You you, you can't blast. You can't. Some of us can have a reputation of toxic tongue, you know? Uh, We claim it's just saying the truth and and being discerning. But other folk may not have that kind of understanding. They might view it as mean, as ungodly, doesn't reflect Jesus. This is, it ought not to be. Shift, change, do something about it. You know, in the psalmist over and over again, the Old Testament says, believers, we're to sing to the Lord a new song. Now, it doesn't mean like it's just, you know, a song done with it, written within the last three months. New song means first old song that I sang was a song that reflected the world's standards, the world's values, the way world, the world saw people, the way the world saw relationships. That's what I used to sing. That's how I lived my life because that's the only way I knew. But now that you're a believer, James is saying you're a believer. Things have been changed, but you're still singing that song. You need to change and sing a new song. Your, your words need to reflect the Jesus you claim to follow. You know, when I was a little boy, my uh, uh, dad, good good man, my dad did not have many, uh, not a godly home, very dysfunctional situation, on and on and on. He's one of these folk who I think did very well with the very little that he was given. But my dad had a rough self-image. And and I remember as a little boy in the house, he would get so angry with himself, and he would just blow up. And he'd son, I ain't nothing but a joke. I ain't nothing but a joke. That's all I am. Well, as a little boy, that's a struggle watching my dad say this about himself. I didn't think he was a joke. Yeah, ain't nothing but a joke. You know, he wasn't saying that about me. He was saying that about him. But as I grew up, 
Guess what I would find myself saying about me? Guess what I might find myself saying about me in front of my kids? It's just a failure. It's all I am. James is saying words are powerful. My dad would have never meant to, to hurt me like that. But words are powerful. No, no, that's, I'm not, everyone feel bad for me. Because some of y'all have had many, many worse things said. The wounds, the wounds are deep. The wounds are deep. And while we can't control the past, what has been said is that the fires are there. If we can extinguish, that's wonderful. But the fire, fire is on. But we can, from this point on, say, I'm dedicating my tongue to you, Lord. I'm singing a new song. It's a, it's a new song. You know, I, when I think about heaven one day and judgment, there's a lot, obviously, I, I don't understand. I think there's a lot of stuff I don't understand that I should as a pastor. Uh, for example, the, the getting the crowns. Uh, they're supposed to, I think, motivate us. They really don't motivate me, and probably the reason they don't is I don't understand them well. But the one thing that, not, that motivates me, I trust it would motivate most people who follow him, is one day when we stand before Jesus, forget the crowns, I don't know, but he'll look at us and say, say, well done, good and faithful servant. Why do we need to hear that? Because he's wired us for that. We need to hear God. We need to have that relationship with God. We need to know that that he is for us. When we represent him to other people, what do we say? Because he could have said to me, can't say to me one day, here is, talk about a joke, talk about a loser, look at the things, the ways you failed. He could point those out because he doesn't, it's not like he doesn't have enough copy there. He could certainly go that route if he wanted to. But there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, when you think about, I cannot imagine not throwing yourself at the foot of the cross because, my goodness, I need that forgiveness. Uh, but to, to know that there's no condemnation in the words he's going to say to me, well done, well done. I pray for myself and for us that we might reflect him, that the people who come across our path, our, our children, our, everyone, we might reflect who Jesus is. That's what James is saying. Don't be singing that old. It's time for a new verse, new song. Reflecting who Christ is. It ought not to be. We can do something about it. So let me just say this. Is there somebody that you need to ask their forgiveness because of something that you said. It's, and you might say, well, it was just a little thing. It was a stupid thing. They need to grow up. Forget all that for a minute, okay? Are they hurt? Are they offended? Gordon Matthew, you need to go. If you remember that your brother has ought against you, you go. You go. Do you need to grant forgiveness to somebody? How is it with you and the people you work with, the, the little people in your office, or neighbors, or family, or how's the, the words? James says, quit singing the old song, time for a new, new, new song, and we'll reflect the, the glory of God in the world that we're in.